from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And our telephone number, if you want to join us by phone, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And today, the IRS whistleblowers took to uh, Capitol Hill to give their testimony as they were investigating the Hunter Biden case and kept hitting roadblocks, roadblocks that they say were being imposed by the higher ups, protecting Hunter Biden coming from Attorney General Merrick Garland, where they weren't able to pursue the facts and follow what they were finding on these fact finding missions. So several people testified, Gary Shapley, uh, one of the IRS whistleblowers. Uh, We also have Joe Ziegler. And uh, we have a clip from Joe Ziegler under oath explaining that he felt that the U.S. attorney in Delaware was hamstrung and limited by the Department of Justice officials. Listen to this. I will also note that while the impression has been conveyed by the U.S. attorney in Delaware that he has similar powers to that of a special counsel in this case, free reign to do as needed, that was not the case. It appeared to me, based on what I experienced, that the U.S. attorney in Delaware in our investigation was constantly hamstrung, limited, and marginalized by DOJ officials as well as other U.S. attorneys. I still think that a special counsel is necessary for this investigation. Again, that's Joe Ziegler, uh, IRS investigator who's serving as a whistleblower, testifying under oath in front of uh, the House Oversight Committee today. And we have many other clips, but I'm, I'm not going to get to all of them right now because I just think it's important that, that we understand what they were investigating, right? There were uh, millions of dollars that weren't accounted for in his taxes. And some of the expenses that they found were just eye-opening. Uh, according to Hunter's own admission in his book, there were hotels that he paid for right across the street from the White House um, where he stayed and smoked crack and engaged in um, lots of lurid activity. Uh, he paid for a sex club membership and did not pay taxes on that. He was expensing these things, uh, as well as uh, tuition uh, for one of his daughters to go to uh, Columbia University. Again, everybody's got to pay their kids' tuition. Uh, the question is, do you expense it and not pay your, your tax bill? And, and listen, anybody can make a mistake on their taxes. Uh, and I truly believe that. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, he did all this on purpose. I don't know. But it does seem like a lot of money, right? It does seem like, I don't know, I think he didn't pay taxes on $3 bucks. You know, I, I just can't imagine forgetting I had $3 bucks. But <laughs> that is... Um, That is kind of where we're at with that. Now, uh, the testimony continued with uh, Gary Shapley and Shapley uh, explaining that the red line for him was when U.S. Attorney Weiss told people that he wasn't the deciding person on whether charges would be filed against Hunter, indicating that 
it was likely going to be someone higher up the food chain, i.e. Merrick Garland. At least that's my inference. Listen to this. The Justice Department allowed the president's political appointees to weigh in on whether to charge the president's son. After United States Attorney for D.C. Matthew Graves, appointed by President Biden, refused to bring charges in March 2022, I watched United States Attorney Weiss tell a room full of senior FBI and IRS senior leaders on October 7, 2022, that he was not the deciding person on whether char charges were filed. That was my red line. I had already seen a pattern of preferential treatment and obstruction. Now, United States Weiss was admitting that what the American people believed, based on Attorney General's sworn, sworn statement, was false. I can no longer stay silent. And he's not the only one. Obviously, we've seen many a whistleblower come out of the FBI, many a whistleblower come out of the IRS. And it's clear to me that they are lending themselves to provide cover to Hunter Biden. They're protecting Hunter Biden. Um in a in a way that you and I wouldn't be protected right now. Meanwhile, you got some congressmen that are out there saying, no, 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 no. The, the, the reality here is that if it were you and me, we wouldn't even be charged. The only reason they're even charging Hunter Biden and forcing him into a plea deal is because he's the president's son. And they want to be able to continue their narrative that no one is above the law. So therefore, Hunter must pay his pound of flesh. Some might believe that, but all you got to do is just think, when was the last time you heard of somebody evading taxes to the tune of millions of dollars and get by without ever facing law enforcement face-to-face? -face? The whole thing negotiated by his lawyer. Sounds like a sweetheart deal to me, right? I, I've heard of people getting threatened and, and losing their homes and things like that just, just for, uh, you know, a hundred grand in taxes. So I'm, I'm not buying this just yet. Not at all. Not in the least. Now, I want to switch gears to talking about things I'm not buying. Listen to this. We've got a story that I shared with you the other day. Carly Russell. Now, listen, my bleeding heart, shame on me. They duped me. They got me. They pulled the wool over my eyes. She says that she saw a toddler on the side of the road tried to render aid to the toddler, and then was kidnapped. Now, my very active imagination that doesn't trust anybody as the father of two daughters uh, thinks, you know, the worst. I, I think the worst. Only to find out that Miss Carly Russell is likely, very likely, in the same league as Jussie Smollett. Or as one famous comedian called him, Jussier Smollier. Right? So, uh, very um, lamentable situation. So sorry to hear that she's a fake, phony fraud. But it seems that the police chief today offered a uh, press conference. And Nick Desden says that, Chief Desden says that it's uh, questionable because of her search history. On July 11th at 7.30 a.m., the term... Do you have to pay for an Amber Alert or search? On July 13th at 1.03 a.m., the day of her disappearance, the term, how to take money from a register without being caught was searched. On July 13th at 2.13 a.m., the day of her disappearance, the term Birmingham bus station was searched. On July 13th, 2.35 a.m., 
a search for a one-way bus ticket from Birmingham to Nashville was conducted with a departure date of July 13th. On July 13th at 12.10 p.m., a search for the movie Taken, a film about a production, was conducted. There were two searches later to Amber Alerts on a computer at Carly's place of employment, including one regarding the maximum age of an Amber Alert. There were other searches on Carly's phone that appeared to shed some light on her mindset, but out of respect for her privacy, we will not be releasing the content of those searches at this time. We've asked to interview Carly a second time, but have not been granted that request. So there you go. Now they don't want to cooperate with authorities. And all I could say is, man, this is horrible to think that we've got these. uh, And more, obviously, more is to come. Another shoe will drop. We're going to find out why she tried to perpetuate this fraud. What was it? Was it really a fraud? Was she under duress? We don't have any of these answers. But it seems like she was concocting a story. For what and for why? It's anybody's guess at this point. What we do know is there was likely no little kid involved here. And this girl's off her rocker and trying to pull a fast one. Can't wait to hear why. So I'm going to keep you updated on that. And speaking of pulling a fast one, the uh, Homeland Security Committee in the House of Representatives uh, issued a uh, scathing report accusing Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas of being intentionally derelict in his duty to the country as he implemented a radical open borders agenda. So we're going to talk to uh, the uh, previous Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf, straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen and they love your show and I appreciate it very much. America at night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, as I mentioned right before we took the pause that uh, Republicans on the House Homeland Security Committee issued a report accusing DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas of being intentionally derelict in his duty to the country as he implemented a, quote, radical open borders agenda, end quote. Chairman Mark Green put together this investigation into Mayorkas. And we know that there's been a, a lot of uh, back and forth on impeaching Mayorkas. And right now there was more than a hundred, excuse me, 1.7 million encounters uh, in 2021 and more than 2.4 million encounters in fiscal year 2022. The numbers uh, have been similarly high in fiscal year 2023, uh, but their administration is reporting a drop in May and June. My question to our guest, uh, former Homeland Security Secretary and uh, current Chief Strategy Officer and Executive Director at the America First Policy Institute, Chad Wolf, is this legit that the numbers are going down? Mr. Secretary, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Good to be on. Look, I think this is uh, its an interesting question. The numbers that we see every month are obviously reported on by DHS and Border Patrol. And I think what you've seen over the last couple of months, the administration will say the numbers have gone down. Now, what they're referring to 
are just border patrol numbers. So these are numbers between ports of entry in the desert or on the river or things like that. It's not actually telling the whole story. The whole story is you have to look at all of the different apprehensions where they occur across the border, regardless of whether they're in the desert or at a port of entry or elsewhere. And so if you take the totality of all the encounters, illegal encounters that the Border Patrol and other elements of DHS, the numbers still remain astronomically high, almost 200,000 per month. And that's that's currently what we're seeing, and it's it's beyond any number that it should be reasonable. These are numbers that continue to break records. The Biden administration over the last two years have had the highest number of illegal apprehensions month after month after month in the history of our country, and it's not even close. So uh, they, they want you to think that somehow the demand is lower because of the policies they put in place. Uh, and I will tell you, and others will tell you, they are simply counting these numbers differently. And I don't think that they're being very transparent with the American people. So it sounds like political sleight of hand, because I did, uh, you know, took a very cursory look at some of the numbers uh, from uh, CBP and the total nationwide encounters for June were 211,000, as you aptly noted. Right. And that, that doesn't seem lower than anything that's previously noted by them. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking right. you're right. They're just saying, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I don't know. Let's, I go on a diet. Yes, I'm eating less cheeseburgers and I'm saying, but I'm also eating way more fries. Right. So clearly I'm not, you know, doing anything yeah. to change my diet. And I feel like that's exactly what's happening here. How are they getting away with it? Is it the media not doing their job? Is it me yeah. not doing enough at, at my job? How do we get this message out that, you know, we're getting had? Well, I think that's right. So if you look at all of the nationwide encounters and the number that you just said is they come from, a, you know, two or three different areas uh, that make up that whole number. And only one portion of them is the number that the administration is reporting on. So it's that at the port of entry. Um, well, it's at, yeah, uh, in between the ports of entry. Right. Um, and so that's the only number and that's the only number that's actually going down. <laughs> and so that's the only number the administration wants you to report on or wants the media to report on, because every other number, including the ones at port of entry, are going up uh, two, three, four hundred percent because they're simply funneling these illegal aliens into the ports of entry and paroling them into the American communities. But look, regardless of how they're coming in, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what matters is what happens to individuals who try to cross the border illegally or come into the country illegally. Either we are a country of the rule of law and we return them and repatriate them back to their home countries, or we allow them into American communities. And unfortunately, the latter is happening today, and it continues to happen day after day, week after week, and month after month. Now, Mr. Secretary Chad Wolf, I want to ask you a question because there's a, a lot of hype about a film that's out, um, the Sounds of Freedom, and it's a fantastic film. I'm sure I haven't seen it myself, uh, but I, I, I have a, a soft spot for anybody that, you know, is uh, fighting the fight against child trafficking and human trafficking. It's, it's a horrible thing. And from what you're seeing, is it safe to presume that the numbers in those types of crimes are going up proportionately, being that the number of total encounters is going up? Well, absolutely. I think what we see along that southern border, and then you'll, you'll have to parse the information and the, those numbers. But what you're seeing is, is over the last 28 months, the largest human trafficking of children that we have ever seen. 
Over 380,000 children have come across that southern border unaccompanied, unaccompanied by an adult, a parent, a guardian, or anyone. And so that means they have been trafficked. They have been trafficked by the cartels in numbers that we have never seen before. So absolutely, The Sound of Freedom is a great movie. I've seen it several times. Um, and it's bringing to light that child, that child sex trafficking undercurrent and underbelly that's out there. Now, the, the, the movie takes place in Colombia, but it is equally um, you know, equivalent to what's going on in, in Central, uh, Central America, Mexico, along the southern border, and unfortunately here in the United States as well. And so it's not something that a lot of people want to talk about. It's a very difficult subject to talk about. So um, I think the movie does a very good job of, of tackling that head on. Yeah, and that, that's uh, tough to hear uh, that, you know, things are getting worse rather than getting better. Uh, I want to continue uh, uh, on this uh, thread here because there's been some talk, and we'll carry it into the next segment, but there's been some talk about impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. Some members of Congress have pushed forward uh, in committee with articles of impeachment. Um, Speaker McCarthy said, look, if this is going on and that's going, we may have to do that. Uh, but there seems to be a, a reluctance in, in moving forward. Uh, is there, what can you uh, tell us about that and how realistic does that seem to you? Yeah, I think you first have to look at what's going on in the Biden administration. And of course, you know, the border security regime is being put in place by the Department of Homeland Security, Secretary Mayorkas and his top senior officials. And I think the report that you mentioned uh, that was released today, I testified before Congress uh, twice in the past month. I think uh, just looking at the facts that you have to say that the crisis that we are, that is currently unfolding along that border uh, has been put in place uh, by intentional decisions and unlawful decisions that have been made over the past two years. And if that's the case, then some accountability needs to be discussed. Um, and so the question is, you know, should the secretary, um, you know, what kind of accountability should be there? And I continue to say that he either needs to be fired, removed or, or impeached. I agreed. Folks, we're on with uh, former Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf. He's with the America First Policy Institute. We're going to continue our conversation on illegal immigration straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez. Our phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Do you have numbers? I mean, how many have been released without a mandated court date? So we released uh, a number because of the surge that we experienced before Title 42 right. came, came to an end. Now, with the 50% drop in the number of encounters at our southern border, we are executing our consequence regime exactly as planned. 
Oh, wow, exactly as planned. That's uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas last month saying everything's going uh, according to plan. We're doing terrific. Things are down by 50 percent. We know that this is nothing more than political sleight of hand as the total nationwide encounters are up, at least in June of 2023. They're at 211,000. This is uh, kind of insane, in my opinion. Uh, Our guest is former Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, who is with the um, America First Policy Institute. And um, Mr. Secretary, there's a report coming out of the Department of Justice right now where they're saying that they're assessing the situation along the Texas-Mexico border amid troubling reports over migrant treatment. Uh, Is this another horse-whipping fiasco, or do you think there's something to this? Uh, Well, it certainly could be. I haven't seen the report. But again, I think this federal government and this administration should actually be focused on uh, the protection of Americans. And Americans should come first. And and having a border security regime, having the Department of Justice, their investigators actually trying to figure out how to stop the border crisis instead of, um, you know, figuring out what, you know, what's going wrong? How are we not treating them, uh, you know, appropriately and, and all this other stuff? So, Look, I think the priorities are misplaced, but we see this time and time again from this administration. They want you to, they want you to believe that any and every migrant who shows up at that border, whether they have a legal right to be here or not, should be allowed in the United States, regardless, regardless of U.S. law. And they want you to focus on that because they don't want you to focus on the results and the consequences of their failed strategy. So again, this is another slide of hand where they want you to focus on. Uh, perhaps some actions of, of you know of a few, uh, and try to obfuscate um, you know really the consequences of, of their failed strategy. Now, some state governors, uh, Florida uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, ha- have taken uh, various actions to try and stem the tide of illegal immigration, and um, the most recent being Governor Abbott's. Uh, installation of buoys in the Rio Grande to try to prevent uh, border crossers from crossing illegally. Um, What can you tell us uh, that we may not already have heard? Uh, Do you know if it's working? Is there any feedback on that? Well, yeah, look, whether it's Governor Abbott, Governor DeSantis, and there are other governors that are that are providing aid and resources and assistance as well. And I think they've gone frustrated. They've gone frustrated that the federal government won't do its job. It's been over two years basically tearing down every effective border security measure. And unfortunately, the governors are left on the front line to protect their citizens. And so whether it's Texans or Floridians or anyone else, they're starting to take action that they haven't had to take before. And every time you do that, you take action for the first time and do something new for the first time, people are going to complain and people are sure. going to say, well, you can't do it that way. And that's what's occurring now. And so whether it's the maritime buoys that we see that Governor Abbott is placing, and again, he's trying to deter that illegal behavior coming across that river because he knows that once they come across that river and step foot on American land, that then the asylum system kicks in and that DHS under the Biden administration will never remove these individuals. And so he is trying to take some action on his own using uh, you know, taxpayer dime from the state of Texas to do what the federal government should be doing, which is enforcing border security law. And while I think while governors are doing everything they can at the state level and within their their purview and, and the power that they have, you, you've got Democrats working equally as as um, um, 
hard at trying to protect uh, Secretary Mayorkas. Uh, I know on Friday, Democrats were, were out there putting out their own report saying that the impeachment inquiry against uh, Mayorkas uh, was really um, something that was created uh, out of cherry-picked information and, and putting this, this out there so that, you know, to, to deter, I guess, um, negative reports or, um, you know, a- any type of critique of the administration and, and their policies. Do you think that this is an effective strategy, A, at, you know, bureaucratically? Do you think it's going to work uh, politically? And C, I guess, do, do you think it's going to be effective in the media? Well, no, I don't think that their their plan to somehow try to convince the American people that everything is okay at the border is going to work. Look, I think it's it's probably the one of the largest disinformation campaigns that we have seen from the federal government. You just have to look by any objective measure, metric, uh, or anything else. It, it's failing along the border, and whether it's the illegal apprehension numbers that we've talked about, the fentanyl, the human trafficking, and you go down the line, and the American people know that what's going on the border is not right. They intuitively know that something is wrong and that the Biden administration is responsible for it. So, look, the left can do everything they want to do to try to protect the secretary and say it's not his fault or or it's, you know, someone else's fault. But the reality is, is that the laws have not changed since the Trump administration to the Biden administration. The only thing that has changed is the change in policies and the lack of enforcing immigration law. And that's the result of what we see today. And so you have to ask yourself, who is responsible for that? Is there a dereliction of duty? And do you hold that individual or individuals responsible? And so those are questions that Congress need to, needs to answer. And I think they're, they're doing that. But to have, you know, and I see the secretary and I see others go on television and try to obfuscate, try to tell, you know, the American people, don't believe your eyes. It's not as bad as what you see and, and what you hear. And it's just not right. It's a lie, and they're not being transparent. Yeah, honestly, and I can tell you just, you know, from an anecdotal perspective, uh, I get my coffee from a, um, a Cuban exile that is one of the very few Cubans I know that, that isn't a Republican. And he, he, he tells me, um, I, I really think that the Democrats are taking advantage of this whole immigration thing because— they're assuming that all of these people coming across the border are going to become Democrats. And this is a guy who, you know, he's a, he's a big Trump hater and, and he just disagrees with me on just about everything. And it's the first time I've heard him admit that, that this is what's going on. My argument was, I think the government's complicit in running a very large human smuggling operation in one way or another, whether it's tacitly or even unwittingly, but it's happening. He argued it wasn't, but that they were just taking advantage of this politically. Uh, but I feel like there's a change in the narrative, even amongst critics. Yeah, I think that's right. And the change in narrative hasn't come overnight, right? It's because we have individuals like yourself and, and others who are saying, this isn't right. I'm going to continue to talk about it. I'm going to continue to report on it. I'm going to actually try to tell the truth and so that the American people can understand What's going on along that southern border and the challenges that we have from a security perspective, from a humanitarian perspective, and then from a legal narcotics perspective, right? When you have over 100,000 deaths uh, and 70,000 deaths from fentanyl overdoses, and largely because of the Mexican cartels are taking extreme advantage of a very porous border, someone needs to be held accountable to that. And I think that's what the American people are saying, and, and, and folks on the left are saying, oh, well, maybe we've gone too far. 
Maybe this open border strategy that we implemented at the beginning of the Biden administration has gotten a little bit out of control. And I think that's why you've seen folks on the left say, well, maybe maybe we should provide some border security or maybe, we, you know, this has gotten out of control uh, and and we don't know where these individuals are and, and we parole them into American communities. You know, there's recent reporting over 500,000, almost a half a million individuals have been paroled into American communities and you don't know where they are. Uh, you know, don't know where they are. Uh, they all receive welfare benefits and, and the like. And so there's some fundamental remaking of the country going on here. And it's out of the public eye, and it's not getting a lot of uh, attention. Now, we know uh, a good number of them are here in New York City driving Mayor Eric Adams crazy. But, uh, folks, we're on with uh, former Homeland Security Secretary in the Trump administration, Chad Wolf. And uh, when we come back, we're going to learn a little bit more about the work that he's doing at the America First Policy Institute. So don't go anywhere. Stick with us. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Our guest is former acting United States Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. And we have uh, several people with lots of questions for him. Hopefully we can get to a couple of you. Uh, let's go to Gary in Ridgefield, Connecticut, WLAD. Gary, you're on with Secretary Wolf and me, Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hi, Mr. Valdez, and hi, Mr. Wolf. Um, I have a uh, uh, question that I would love to hear somebody ask uh, Mr. Mayorkas, and I think you would have a, uh, a, a good sense of it, too. It's very simple. Um, out of the approximately 2 million people that are coming uh, into our country illegally uh, every year, what percentage would Mr. Mayorkas or you, you, Mr. Wolf, what percentage would you estimate are people coming here to our country harm? like terrorists and whatnot. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate it. Mr. Secretary, go right ahead. Yeah, it's a hard question to answer, and I'll tell you why, because uh, we're not apprehending everyone crossing that border, right? So of the ones that we are apprehending and the Border Patrol is actually interviewing, uh, there is a good portion that are public safety threats and national security threats, but there's a number every month, and it's been hovering around 60,000 a month that we call our gotaways. These are individuals that we know cross the border because we have radar feeds and camera feeds that show them, but we don't pick them up because we don't have the assets in that area. And so these are individuals that want to abscond from law enforcement. And so I would classify all 60,000 as individuals that, uh, again, are, are here for a nefarious reason. So the number that we continue to see along that border uh, that are, I would say are a threat one way or, or another to the United States is significant. In the Biden administration alone over the last 28 months, over 225 known or suspected terrorists have been apprehended at that border. And you just compare that with the 16 in the 
total for in the four years of the Trump administration for all four years, 16 known or suspected terrorists. And so the number is is startling. And I think the threats are only increasing because of the overall number of illegal apprehensions are increasing as well. Uh, thank you, Gary. Great question. Now, Secretary Wolf, tell us uh, about the work that you're doing at the America First Policy Institute, because I know that there's there's quite a bit that you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. AFPI is a nonprofit. Um, we have about 135, 145 folks working across about 16 or 17 different policy areas. Obviously, Homeland Security and immigration is a big one for us, but also uh, health care and national security and, and education opportunity and a variety of others. And so we took a lot of the former officials of the Trump administration uh, that were working on some really in-depth policy and tried to take the policies that would have been executed in the second term and move those over into this nonprofit and say, there's a different way to run this country. There's a different way to, to restore the soul of the country back to policies that uh, made people feel safer, made them more prosperous at the end of the day and protected more lives. And, and those are the policies that we continue to write about. And we do that with individuals that ran departments. We have nine former cabinet officials and over 40 different senior officials. And so we are pushing forth an America first agenda and policies that 70 to 80% of Americans agree with. Well, keep up the outstanding work. Let everybody know how they can, uh, find out what you're doing, how they could follow you on social media, any website you want to put in, now would be the time. Yeah, you can follow myself or any of my colleagues at AmericaFirstPolicy.com. Obviously, I'm on, on Twitter uh, as well as AFPI has a Twitter account. So you can, you can certainly find that as well. But AmericaFirstPolicy.com, you can go there and, and basically find links to every, every other uh, social uh, that we use. Absolutely. Folks, give them a follow. Support the work that they're doing at AFPI. And um, former Secretary Chad Wolf, I want to thank you for the work you're doing both at AFPI, the work you've done in the past and the update that you provided us tonight. It's uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Thanks for keeping um, up, up to speed on everything that's going on. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate being on. You bet. Godspeed. We'll do it again soon. Folks, there is more to come straight ahead with your calls. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez. We're going to go to your calls right now. Let's go to Tommy in Charleston, West Virginia, WCHS. Tommy, welcome. Uh, thank you, Mr. Valdez, Mr. Wolf, for this opportunity. Uh, Mr. Wolf. What we actually, uh, the secretary uh, left us, so you own, you're stuck with me, Tommy. Oh, okay. Well, um, I uh, was going to ask him if the farm worker program was still remaining functional and viable. Uh, which has did one version or another since the 1940s. Uh, and I know it's awkward because uh, I knew a guy who was in that business. But uh, the other thing is I uh, am so glad that uh, Vice President Harris finally did get to the border and uh, we finally found out that uh, Hunter Biden 
uh, oh shucks, forgot to pay some taxes. Uh, and uh, do, do we know what Hunter Biden is? Is he actually going to be in court? Are we going to actually hear much from the prosecutor? It seems to be the whole narrative has been spun by his uh, defense uh, counsel. Yeah, well, and, the first uh, part of that, that I, just to to respond, the the farm worker program, as I know it, is is alive and well. Um, and the second part is Hunter Biden's not going to face anything anywhere. He's accepted a plea. So he's signing off that he he's guilty. They're going to issue a sentence probably with just his attorneys present. They probably won't even require him to show up. Interesting. Uh, if that was me, I think things would be different. I think uh, it was me too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I do want to say that, uh, this border issue, uh, I have been familiar with immigration, uh, not an expert, all the way back to the early 1980s with the Reagan administration, uh, Reagan and then, of course, uh, Bush the Elder, the amnesty program, and uh, that no president has failed as badly on immigration and the border as Biden. Uh, absolute disaster. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, I, I, uh, uh, I'll let uh, some other callers weigh in. You bet, Tommy. Thank you for your call. I appreciate it. And I just to say, I, I do agree with you. Uh, I haven't been around as long as you have, but I can tell you in my lifetime, haven't seen anything this bad. Right. And this is uh, the worst I've ever seen. I know people who are immigrants. Again, the guy that uh, makes my coffee in the morning. This guy came from Cuba on a jet ski from Havana to Key West, and he's the first one telling. He's like, yeah, nobody's even doing that trip anymore. He says it's easier to go to Mexico and come across the border. And he says they only charge you 4000 bucks for Cubans to smuggle you in. And, and, and it was, he was saying, you know, what's happening right now is horrible. And he also went on to tell me that his opinion, not mine, I don't know anything about that, but he was telling me, he said the absolute worst, he said it's very similar to the Marielle boat lift that, that um, happened back in the 80s where the they sent the absolute worst, like they emptied out jails to put them on that boat lift. And he's telling me that's the same thing that's happening now. People uh, who are the most undesirable, biggest delinquents that you could think of are the ones that are um, leaving by way of uh, coming through the border and making their way into mainly to Miami. And he said his opinion, that's why crime is so high in Miami. I'll take it with a grain of salt, but it gives you some food for thought. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. The music means I've got to go. So we will uh, get to the rest of your calls a little bit later on. But uh, we continue with our conversations this evening. And up next, we're going to talk about the Biden administration's $39 billion bailout known as student loan forgiveness. You don't want to miss that. Stay tuned. I'm Rich Valdez. that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez 
America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and I'm at Rich Valdez on all of the social media if you want to chime in that way. Or you can give us a call and join our late-night national conversation, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is our phone number. And uh, Israeli uh, President Herzog was addressing Congress, and he had some very sharp rebukes for some of his critics. We'll get to that a little bit later at the top of the, the next hour. Uh, what I want to talk about now is two things. One, this program, America at Night with Rich Valdez, has been um, nominated for a People's Choice Award, the podcast version of the, this program. So I'm going to give you some details on how to vote because you got to vote by email and you got to register your email. So it's going to require you, the people to make your choice on if you like this program or not, and you want our program to win. So if you're listening to this, write this down, podcastawards.com. You go in there, put in my name, Rich Valdez, and give us a vote. Again, you got to register your email and click on a little blue box that says vote here, podcastawards.com. I'll talk about it a little bit more in the next hour as well, and I'll also put something out on social media. But you can check it out at podcastawards.com. Now, I'm looking at another article here. Listen to this. Biden's student loan bailout plan to cost $475 billion over the next decade. That's roughly $45 billion more than the rejected plan. And that's according to a study uh, from the uh, Penn Wharton uh, budget model. So this is uh, an interesting uh, turn of events. And uh, obviously a lot of people are upset with this. Uh, But from the polling I've seen, a majority of people really don't care. So um, we're going to have some conversation on that with the senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, Jonathan Butcher. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Great to be with you. You bet. You bet. Uh, So let's talk about this, because, uh, I I mean, either way you slice it, this thirty nine billion dollar deal, which, you know, the New York Post and Penn Wharton are saying is going to cost us four hundred and seventy five billion over the next decade. Uh, Either way, it sounds like a raw deal for taxpayers uh, break it down for us. Well, look, the whole situation has become a bit of a political theater, right? So the Biden administration proposed uh, from the executive office that uh, with his signature, they could wipe away you know, student loans for uh, a huge majority of, uh, of borrowers. And uh, the Supreme Court, of course, stepped in just a few weeks ago and said, no, you've completely overstepped your bounds. You cannot, through executive order, sign away student loans to taxpayers. Because remember, uh, they call this a, uh, a student loan forgiveness plan, but they're not forgiving anything. They're just shifting the cost from borrowers to taxpayers, right? You know, the people in the middle class and uh, the lower class and who are, you know, feeding their families and taking care of their, you know, homes and all those kinds of things. Um, and so what's happened now is that uh, along the way, the Biden administration figured out how to use rules um, sometimes without even getting, most of the time, 
without even getting the proper permission that they needed to through the rulemaking process to sort of uh, carve out different constituencies of borrowers, right? Borrowers who went to for-profit colleges, uh, borrowers who have um, special needs, borrowers who work in the public sector. And now you have this, it's called an income-driven repayment plan. And what it would do is it would cut the uh, borrower's monthly loan payments. Uh, they were formerly capped at 10% of discretionary income. So you couldn't pay any, any more on your loan than 10% of your discretionary income. Well, they're going to cut that in half. I'll cap it at 5%, okay? And then they're going to take uh, that and they're going to even say that the uh, the time to ultimate, quote, forgiveness or end of the loan would go from 20 years to 10 years. So you're talking about people who would have, um, in particular, majors that have lower um, income when they graduate, so lower salary. They may pay nothing over the course of their loan because they would never qualify to uh, under this plan for their income to be high enough that they would pay even the interest on the loan. However, graduates who do take out loans and have uh, a higher salary, they would pay significantly more. So really, the whole thing is just showmanship. I mean, the, the administration is using it to buy votes, um, and they are really um, you know, the most important thing here is that two thirds of Americans don't have a four year bachelor's degree, two thirds. OK. And so you're mm -hmm. asking those people to pay the loans of, for the most part, some 50 plus percent of uh, borrowers are those that have loans for graduate school. So potentially future doctors and lawyers. How do you see this um, playing out, uh, I guess, um, politically speaking, do you think he scores the the cheap political points he's trying to score or do you think this kind of blows up in his face for people the two-thirds of americans that you know don't have these loans uh say uh or doesn't mean they don't have these loans but didn't uh complete college didn't even go to college right yeah, yeah. yeah. they turn around and say um i, I don't want to do it i don't like it i'm no no thanks <laughs> how do you think it plays out well, part of the problem with a plan like this is that rarely do you see the bill, right? I mean, these are loans that are sort of uh, held somewhere by some federal bank, right? And taxpayers won't really recognize what's going on until they get their tax bill, right? So I hope that we can inform American taxpayers that this cost is being shifted to them, right? The cost of students going to college who are taking out federal loans is being shifted to taxpayers some of whom may have even paid off their loans, right? Uh, some of whom saved up to pay for their kids to go to college. And uh, Washington is now wiping it away. So I hope that we can communicate to Americans that, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is a plan that's going to be very expensive for them. And it's a very valid question. Why are we doing this now? Why didn't we do this, you know, two years ago? And are we going to do this again in three years, in five years? I mean, how many times are we going to ask taxpayers taxpayers to just foot the bill, right, for uh, some sort of, you know, loan, you know, washing away, right, uh, of all loan debts. And that's not fair to Americans. Um, and I mean, look, there are problems in the higher ed system right now. Tuition is too high at most colleges. Uh, tuition goes up every time Washington makes a commitment like this, saying that they will either carve out certain borrowers or that they're going to pay off loans, what have you. 
um, colleges can then just say, well, I mean, look, well, we can make tuition go up as high as we want if Washington continues to foot the bill. So, you know, I think for starters, I think we have to communicate to Americans that this, that this is expensive for them. Um, and then secondly, I think that uh, there should continue to be pressure from the courts saying that what Biden is doing is an overreach of executive authority. I mean, he does not have the authority either from the White House or through the Department of Education um, to uh, to make changes like this. Yeah, excellent point that you bring up. And, you know, interestingly, I, I worked in uh, higher ed for, for a couple of years, uh, about eight years, and I can tell you that I've seen tuition go up. And as an administrator, I, I, I realized how uh, – how difficult it is to, to run a very small college. And in the Christian higher education space, which is where I was in New York, there's um, a couple of schools I just recently found out that are shutting down, right? Nyack College in New York is shutting down, as is the King's College, like completely closing because they literally can't increase the tuition enough to stay uh, afloat in, in this climate, in this part of the country. And I'm, I'm thinking and I've seen this coming for a long time because ultimately there's oh, but so much raising of tuition you do before you hit the point of diminishing returns. And you say, hold on, why am I spending four million dollars on a degree? I'm never going to make four million dollars from. And and I think ultimately people say, well, it just doesn't make sense. It's not worth it. I'm not going there. And I think that's happening now. Um, what What's your take on the increasing of tuition across the board how, do you see that? Um, it's not. I don't think it's going to go down, but do you see it kind of um, waning a little bit, where it, it uh, plateaus, or do we see more college closures? So I think a couple of things are going to happen simultaneously. I mean, I think for one, there's going to be an increase in the number of new schools that try to open to offer a different experience to students. We've seen the University of uh, Austin mm-hmm. down in Texas. Uh, which made a big splash uh, as they're about to enroll students here pretty soon. Um, There's a college in North Carolina called Thales Academy, um, and uh, that comes from um, an individual who started a set of classical Christian private schools uh, who now has moved to the higher ed space um, and is trying to create a low-cost experience for students. Uh, There's a place called Ralston in Savannah, Georgia. Um, So, you know, we're going to start to see, I think, some new institutions open up that are going to try to deliver a different experience, something that is cost effective and perhaps most importantly, something that is teaching quality skills to students so that college isn't four years of sort of Maoist indoctrination. And and this is a real thing here, right? I mean, colleges mm-hmm. have struggled to be places where free speech has any place, you know, in the classroom. Uh, I think over and over again, we see these headlines of either shout downs or, you know, the latest class that's teaching, you know, some sort of communist propaganda, um, uh, especially at, you know, especially at institutions, um, large institutions. And now, of course, you know, we have the Supreme Court ruling from uh, the Harvard and UNC cases that found that these colleges were using racial discrimination. They're using racial discrimination in their admissions practices. Um, And there's evidence, there's proof. I mean, there are in the, what's fascinating about these rulings is that um, there are actually footnotes in the rulings that quoted from emails among administrators talking about how they used racial preferences when they were considering um, different student uh, applications. I mean, so I think Americans are losing faith in traditional higher ed institutions. I mean, I think there's even been news about how uh, some federal judges are saying that they're not going to take anybody 
to come work for them who, you know, just came out of Harvard, Yale, or one of the Ivies anymore, because they know what's being taught there. Um, so I, I think the pressure of new institutions and parents not, you know, being not wanting to pay 80 plus thousand dollars a year for their child to go off to school and finding somewhere else, that ultimately is what's going to put, um, you know, incentivize these schools to change, uh, to change their ways. And, uh, and I think if they don't, I, I do think, especially now as we see low birth rates and fewer and fewer students at this point going off to college, um, that there's going to be a real crunch here. And I think uh, the schools are either going to have to change on their own, or like you said, as you listed the schools that were starting to close, uh, it's going to be forced on them. Yeah, excellent point. Uh, folks, I don't want you to go anywhere wrong with Jonathan Busher, senior, uh, Butcher, excuse me, senior research, research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And uh, we're going to come back and continue this conversation. Uh, he also has some interesting thoughts on mental health, the ambiguity of gender and protecting families and children, which I think is right in line with this conversation. So we're going to do that straight ahead. Plus your calls, 833-4-VALDES, 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez, who, again, will do a fine job, but I know you'll enjoy listening to him. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. It's Rich Valdez, our guest, Jonathan Butcher, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. And we're having a conversation on education and children and families. And uh, there's a piece he's got on his uh, Heritage page uh, titled Mental Health, the Ambiguity of Gender and Protecting families and children. Uh, Jonathan Butcher, walk us through that a little bit. Sure. So some state lawmakers have taken some really key steps to prevent schools from coming between parents and their children. There are some states, California, New Jersey, uh, even uh, New York, where there are policies in place that allow school officials to not tell parents when their children come to school and want to, quote, assume a different gender and use a different pronoun or name. And in response, I think there have been some some key leaders, most recently Governor Youngkin in Virginia, who have said that school personnel may not keep a secret from parents when a student is coming to school and uh, wants to, um, you know, assume a different name or, quote, gender. Uh, this is a, a very key, a very important health decision that a child is making, uh, minor children at very young ages. And so we need uh, parents to be right at the center of this kind of decision making. And uh, school personnel, they absolutely must have parent permission before they address a child by a pronoun that is different than what's on there uh, that doesn't correspond with their birth certificate. Uh, This is called the Given Name Act. Uh, There's more information about it on our our website at at heritage.org. And look, some of the key research behind this idea is that when a student, uh, when a minor, uh, or anyone really decides that they want to um, uh, live a life 
that is different from what is on their birth certificate. And again, it's hard to even sort of define what, what this is because the concept of gender is so ambiguous. It changes all the time. Um, but, you know, for the sake of argument, you know, when they, when they change their, quote, gender, um, it does not improve their mental health. Um, it, students and young people who are thinking of going by a different gender, a different pronoun, uh, are often at the same time struggling with anxiety, um, struggling with depression. There are a number of other mental health issues that, that are happening at the same time. It's very common right, for, uh, for them to have these kinds of struggles and try to cope by um, saying that they want to, saying that they were born in the wrong body, right? And um, they suddenly find themselves going down a very dangerous path that can have, um, you know, consequences that they cannot change later in life. Yeah, you know, you mentioned New Jersey, and I know I just uh, I had looked at uh, some of what was coming out of those school boards and even had local school boards where the parents were very involved and this got the school boards to to pass local ordinances saying that school boards couldn't do that. And now you've got the state of New Jersey and the attorney general uh, on behalf of Governor Phil Murphy suing these local school boards. Uh, because they've passed their local um, school rules saying that you do have to notify parents. So it seems like the state is adamant about keeping um, these decisions extremely private and keeping parents out of the loop where they have no rights, sadly. Yeah, and that's really, that is not the place for schools to be, to be coming in between parents and their children. Um, I mean, the trust and the uh, satisfaction level of public schools right now is that it's uh, some of its lowest points in uh, many, many years. And I think part of it is this, um, these act- actions that are putting, you know, school personnel in between parents and their kids, uh, not to mention these, you know, extraordinarily low and declining student test scores in math and reading that we've seen coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. Folks, uh, Jonathan Butcher is our guest. You could follow him at J.M. Butcher. He's uh, with the Heritage Foundation. You can go to heritage.org and check out his page. Really good uh, commentary by Jonathan Butcher. Jonathan, I want to thank you for being with us. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you. You bet. Folks, more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more. 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. By the way, are you raising a narcissist? We're going to find out. All right, so the question uh, right now is, are toxic parents turning uh, kids into narcissists? Now, we've talked about narcissistic people in the past, and, you know, most of the time we're thinking of adults, right? I think most of the time people are thinking of a man. Uh, But narcissists have an inflated sense of their self-importance and need for admiration from others. But to truly understand where narcissistic personality disorder comes from, we have to look at childhood development. Children are most susceptible to the influences on their personality because they are just developing that personality. 
and obviously who we surround ourselves with when we are children has an impact on that as well. Obviously, those are our parents. So good or bad, the way our parents treat um, their children affect that child's personality in adulthood. So again, the question, how do we become narcissists in childhood? Well, Kim Minch, did I say it right? Minch, excuse me, Kim Minch, uh, she's a parenting coach and she's also the founder of Real Life Parenting Guide. Kim, welcome. I am excited to have this conversation with you, Rich. How are you? Oh, thank you. <laughs> me too. Me too. Uh, because, you know, again, I, I'm, I, I don't know if I'm done or not, but I once many years ago heard um, some statistic, might have been from Barna, Barna Research Group, that said that the majority of your parenting is done by the age of six. And what they were referring to was like, you know, major decisions, major outlooks on life, things like that. And they said everything else, kids will have pretty much their own outlook. But the stuff that you're really going to ingrain in them happens by six and at the latter end, like by 14. And I don't know how true or not that is, but I think it is somewhat uh, realistic when I look at my own kids who are now 18 and 22. But Mm. be that as it may, I'm sure that there's plenty of parenting left because at 18 and 22, I find myself still doing a lot of parenting. It's just a different type of parenting, right? Uh, It's not like, you know, minding your manners and saying please and thank you. It's, you know, bigger issues and thinking through bigger problems. But with this topic of narcissism in childhood, I think um, it it seems to stem from childhood. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, sure, I will. Um, there are certain. There's no one parenting technique or parenting behavior that is pegged to raising a narcissist. There are several different things that can influence whether or not your son or daughter grow up into potentially having narcissistic tendencies. One of those things is being raised in a family where... Um, Competition, they're heavily into competition. The parents are highly competitive and only reward really when their son or daughter is highly achieving or winning. So what happens is, you know, these these kids who grow up in this environment know that they are um, not valued and that love, the love comes to them conditionally. They've got to be winning. They've got to be doing well, either academically or in sports or whatever it is that the parent is competitive with. That is one way that kids will grow into like a narcissistic tendency. Um, They just are stably loved. They don't, they know that in order to receive love and um, acceptance from their parents, they have to be at the top of the game. They have to be the center of attention. Wow. That's a a lot to unpack there. And, but it sounds like a lot of families that are, you know, really focused on sports and people that are really like, Hey, you know, come on, let's go and win. And and I realize that there's probably a lot of parents out there that want their kids to win. And, you know, they're, they're saying things like, uh, listen, listen, come on, you shouldn't get a participation trophy just for playing the game. It it does matter whether you win or lose. And and I think all those things are, are real. Uh, But from what I'm gathering from you, it seems like if there's too much of an emphasis on competition that the child loses out and could end up becoming a narcissist. Yes. In all of the examples that I'll give you, and I'll give a couple more of, you know, different 
parenting behaviors that can lead to narcissism, really the idea here is extremes. You know, so yes, we, we want our kids to be in sports and there's all sorts of, you know, good reasons, comp- healthy competition. There's nothing wrong with that. It's extreme. It's when, you know, really the parent is so focused on winning and they really only show their affection and acceptance to their children when they are winning. That, that, that's the problem. That's the issue. Right. So, so then the child feels kind of like it's performance based love or performance based affection. And, and what causes that? Um, cause I mean, I've had plenty of jobs like that. I don't know if those have ever turned me into a narcissist. Uh, but what does it for a kid when they feel, do they feel unloved if they don't achieve? And is that yeah, what I causes it's, them it's, to focus on yes. the narcissism later? Yes. Yes. I mean, really the parent probably is some somewhat of a narcissist to themselves, right? Because they are, again, it's all about them. And we know that narcissists have that inflated sense of self-importance and need for admiration from others. So they want their kids, you know, to be focused or to be the focus, the ones focused on as well. Um, and another way that we can, you know, talk about this parenting behavior that could lead to raising a narcissist is um, when the parent has narcissistic tendencies themselves and um, doesn't value the child or puts them down, like a highly critical parent, because what happens is the kids grow up feeling like inadequate and humiliated. They don't know. It's it's like walking on eggshells, right? They don't know when their parent may turn on them and criticize or devalue them. So growing up in that kind of environment they then turn into an adult that wants to prove themselves not only to this parent that criticized them constantly, but to the world in general. So they're looking for that attention and they have that inflated sense of self-importance because they're trying to prove themselves. So how do you, um, how do you go about fixing something like that? Or I guess I'll leave that. We'll, we'll come right back to that. But I'm thinking if, if someone comes to you, for example, and says, Hey, um, I don't know. This was my story. My dad was super uh, focused on me excelling in sports or my mom, you know, was 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 a tyrant when it came to softball or whatever, whatever the case is. Um, You know, I guess what advice could you give the parents that are listening and don't answer just yet? I want to give the phone number out in case they have a question for you. 833-482-5337 is our number. 833-4-VALDEZ. And when we come back, the response to how you um, go about rectifying a situation where you have narcissistic parents raising narcissistic kids. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. Raw with Kim Minch. Uh, she is a certified parenting coach and the founder of Real Life Parenting Guide. And Kim, I want you to pick up where we left off, which was uh, your thoughts on how to rectify the situation when you 
when you have a parent uh, that raises a child in such form and then the child is subsequently a narcissist? I don't think there's an easy answer for this question, Rich, because narcissists in general are people who have those tendencies to have this self-inflated sense of importance have a very difficult time looking within themselves. Um, they have a very difficult time, you know, being self-reflective and wanting to make changes. They are generally people who don't think they have a problem. Now, I coach parents who come to me at times who grew up in situations where their parents were and still are, you know, very narcissistic. And they it, it, it does definitely make an impact on a child and or an adult, right? So when those those parents come to me and they've had this kind of background with a parent, I tell them there's, there's one book that I recommend all the time. That is excellent. And if you're okay with it, I'd love to share the title here. Yeah, go right ahead. Okay. So it's called adult children of emotionally immature parents, adult children of emotionally immature parents by Lindsay Gibson. And it's therapist recommended. It is written by a therapist and it does an excellent job of explaining to um, explaining to people how they grew up in this environment, because when you grow up with a parent who is a self, you know, who feels that they need a sense of themselves and they're like that the kids in these situations generally cater to the parent because it's all about the parent. Like it, it just totally is about the parent and what they want. And they're looking for love and acceptance. And sometimes in order to do that, they have to be highly competitive, as we talked about before the break. Or sometimes it can be a situation, if you think of like a pageant mom, a pageant mom mm. may put her her daughter in, a, in the spotlight and heap praise on this child who may have some talent, but the mother really heaps it on. Um, in order because she she has a sense of herself identified in that child, like she's too attached to this kid and puts them on a, you know, on a pedestal and they have to stay this perfect child because of that. Um, and I know I'm getting off track here a little bit, but like I said, if I think one of the problems is if you have a narcissistic parent, they generally do not have the ability or desire to look within themselves, that's part of the problem. But if they grow up in that situation and they start to feel as if they might, you know, have those tendencies, the books they can read is this Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents because it really speaks to what it's like to grow up with an emotionally immature parent because, in, in a sense, narcissism is, you know, a, a parent, someone who cannot, a parent who cannot, self-reflect and look at and maybe acknowledge where they did something wrong or could have done something better as a parent, um, you know, can cause, that can cause obviously a lot of damage on a child. So in a situation like that, what, what um, uh, besides the book, how do you advise people to proceed with their lives? Well, fortunately people, people who, well, no, people, <laughs> people who, come to me for coaching, for example, they are willing 
they have the courage to work on their parenting. I don't, I, I probably, you know, again, without having any ability to self-reflect or empathy for their kids, narcissistic parents aren't going to work on themselves. They don't think they have a problem. Right. So presuming, you know, whether the parent is a narcissist or an addict that, that can't fix themselves, um, what, what is it that you do with the children? How, how, do, how do you help them to, to get to a better place? Well, I think that um, what you can do is teach them empathy, teach them um, the ability to work, like work on oneself, right? Self-reflect. Um, and <laughs> it, it's hard if their primary caregiver is someone who has these tendencies, it can be very difficult. It, and a lot of times there may be a spouse or a co-parent who isn't narcissistic, right? Both parents generally are not having this self-inflated tendency. One may have some, the other one may be more extreme in their narcissism, but a lot of times um, there's one spouse that doesn't have this tendency at all. And those parents do have empathy. And even if there's one of the two parents that has more ability to self-reflect and has more empathy, that parent will generally, hopefully, have healthier relationships with their kids. And kids are going to learn from both parents. If they've got a narcissistic parent and they've got a parent that doesn't have those tendencies, they are going to learn from both parents. Now, let's presume the parents are dead and you have just these kids that grew up with these self-absorbed parents that were narcissistic or had narcissistic tendencies. Um, are, are they screwed? Is there hope for people like that uh, based on, on your experience or what do they do? Both parents are narcissistic and they're dead. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, sure. Hmm. Uh, um, they, if they grew up with narcissistic parents, both of them, I don't know that I would say they're screwed, but unless they have the desire to grow and change because of maybe their marriage situation or their situation or not wanting to carry on a generational pattern of lack of empathy and lack of self-reflection, then they probably are screwed. Yeah. You know, if they have to, you have to have this adult that you're talking about would have to have a desire to heal and change the pattern of what they grew up. Well, in. let's let's go there. Do you find that most people, um, whether it's narcissism or anything else that you deal with in your coaching practice, are looking for improvement, or do most people say, "No, my life is fantastic. I've got it all together. I'm not really interested." No, the the parents that I coach, and I coach parents of eighteen to twenty five year olds specifically, the parents that I coach have now gotten to a place with their young adults where their young adult is being very clear with them at times <laughs> where they messed up as a parent. And the parents that come to me want to do better because they realize that they maybe didn't look at their own childhood and see how that was affecting their parenting earlier in their life. And here now they're looking at, you know, their young adult, maybe you know, crossing them out of their lives if they don't get some help for the way that they were parenting. Let everybody know how they can um, 
locate you, follow you, and see the type of work that you're doing? Yeah, so I do a lot of work on TikTok. I have a big following there at Kim Minch Parent Coach, Instagram as well, and my website is reallifeparentguide.com. Outstanding. Well, Kim Minch, thank you for enlightening me. I definitely uh, did not know any of this stuff. And uh, <laughs> very interesting to, to know that this is out there. And uh, hopefully I'll be more empathetic in when I'm dealing with people, not only my own kids, but any people, uh, realizing that that's a thing, right? Because I'd learned a little bit about narcissism with a previous guest, but never on how it affects their children. Right? So this is a really interesting uh, kind of uh, follow-up to that. Thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it. Yeah, Rich, it was good talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Take care. All right, folks, there's more to come straight ahead with your calls and more. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDES. That's Valdes with an S. All right, to the phones we go. But first, I have to remind you about the 18th Annual People's Choice Podcast Awards. Uh, This program, Rich Valdes, America at Night, has been nominated uh, for our coverage of government and organizations And it's up to you guys, since this is the People's Choice Podcast Awards, it's up to you all, the listeners, to actually take, I don't know how long this takes, 10 minutes, maybe 9 minutes, whatever it is, uh, to register your email and your husband's email and your sister's email. You know, everybody who wants to vote in your household, uh, each of you will get a vote. And to register your family's email addresses and uh, at this website, podcastawards.com podcast awards that's plural podcast awards.com and click on the blue button that says nominations voting now open click here to vote and that's it so podcast awards.com click on the little blue box that says click here to vote and vote for rich valdez you can just put my name right in there anyway uh quickly within the time that we have left let us go Oh, the music came in. Well, you know what? Hold on. We'll get to your calls momentarily. It is Open Phone America starting in just a few minutes, so you can start calling in now. We're going to get to your calls on all of our topics. Uh, I realize some people are on hold, and I want to get to you, but the music is unfair. We will be right back. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. It's just getting started. Open Phone America starts right now. I'm Rich Valdez. that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america 
And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and our phone number if you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation. Feel free to do it. It's 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. And we've had some interesting conversations tonight on the IRS whistleblowers. We're going to continue with that, uh, the mystery the mystery whistleblower was revealed today as he gave his testimony. We also had some conversation on Biden's student loan bailout and what that means for Americans. And, of course, we talked about the crisis at the border as well as what it's like to have narcissistic parents uh, or what, what the effects of narcissistic parenting on the child of uh, said narcissistic parent. And... Children of narcissistic parents can suffer pretty long-lasting effects in their adulthood, which is going to affect their self-esteem, their mental health, their susceptibility to be traumatized again, as well as their emotional regulation, or what's known as emotional dysregulation, which is a common symptom for ADHD people like me. Uh, It's why we fly off the handle. But um, a researcher specializing in narcissism... um, says that, you know, these kids can reparent themselves if they were the child of a narcissistic parent. Now, our last guest said that this is very difficult and you would have to rely on the main parent. You know, the the idea is to kind of work through it with the parents is what I was gathering from the, the last guest who specialized in helping parents uh, to become better so they could help their children. Uh, but very fascinating topic and one that I don't know anything about, but I'm really interested in learning more about because as I'm getting older, I'm realizing there's a lot of things I don't know about, obviously. And uh, it's good to know these things, right? You, you get you get a perspective that you didn't quite have before. So I want to get your calls on this and anything else. Uh, of course, the woman who um, said she saw a toddler on the side of the road, <laughs> we're going to get to that. The police chief uh, uh, very uh, gently ripped her a new one in a press conference today, all but saying she's a liar. Uh, that's my take, not his, but we'll get to that momentarily. Let's go to Frisco, Texas, KSCS, and check in with Kristen. Kristen, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. I All find right. it intriguing that you guys are talking about what you are. Are you there? Yeah, go right ahead. Um, I was raised by a narcissistic parent. I, I didn't realize that she was narcissistic until uh, my adult years. She... Um, let my brother and I go into foster care and chose her relationship with her husband over my brother and I. And that was when I was 11. And it took me many years of moving on without a relationship with her and then coming back to it and constantly being hurt by her. And then eventually I learned that I can forgive her and keep distance. And that doesn't mean I don't forgive her and move on. But now I'm co-parenting with a narcissistic parent with my older two girls. And mm. so I have, I've had it from all angles and it's, it's challenging. It's really, really challenging and it makes life difficult. And, um, I realized that I have a lot of healing to do myself and I have five children. I love being wow. a mom and self-reflection is vital what she was saying. And I, I feel like because of me being, uh, put away by my mom and not raised by her, 
the good I see in that is that I'm, I'm less like her and I can see right. the things that she did that damaged me that I don't want to do to my children. But I think you can overcorrect. That's one thing that I have found in parenting is that you can overcorrect the problem too. Is How I so? Can give my kids, I can give my kids things that I didn't have and they don't see the value in it the way I do. Ah, and right. I've, I've made it a point to give my kids everything that I didn't have, putting my dreams on hold. Now, when you're giving your kids everything you didn't have, is are you giving them things like material items or hugs and kisses and affection that you may not have missed out on? I think love and I think coddling, like not wanting them to hurt or feel sad or just trying uh. to carry them so much that it can make them a little insensitive. Yeah, overprotection. Because I didn't understand that for a long time. I was like, why Why does my daughter kind of bully me? And I had to learn that, you know, it's okay for them to go through hard times. It's okay for them to endure sadness. It's good for them. That's what builds character. But, you know, obviously I'm not to inflict it, but when it happens in the outer part of our home, just teach them how to go through it and carry through. But not be so like, oh my gosh, what can I do to make you feel better? And right over, I guess over parenting. And I, I it took me, I had my oldest is 17 and my youngest is 20 months. And so I have them spread out. So I have time to learn still, and I'm still learning and regearing. And it's, I realize as I'm 37 and I'm still healing and I'm trying to parent at the same time. And I just learning that my mom was narcissistic. I'm like, okay, I have, I, I know where, what steps I need to take now. And I think this was the most peaceful time this last time that I cut her off out of my life was probably the most peaceful one. I'm like, I need to move on without her. And I had mourned her so many times in my life that it was easy this time because I knew it wasn't me. It was her and the things that she would say that would tear me down we're reflecting her and not me. I think it's super cool that you're touching on this topic because a lot of people don't know what narcissism is. And maybe people that are narcissistic might look at themselves and want to reflect and hopefully touch, touch on. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-4237. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Seven eight three three 
for Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. I want to thank Kristen for her phone call. Uh, the deep state is at it again with my microphone on the fritz, but that won't stop us. Uh, again, welcome back. I am Rich Valdez. Our phone number, 833-482-5337. Let us continue. Uh, we had a call from, let's see, where were we going with this? We were going to caller number, hold on. Right here. Hmm. I had my finger on it. Bear with me. Chuck, Greenwood, South Carolina, WCRS. Go right ahead. Yes, I just wanted to say that um, being a narcissist is not necessarily uh, caused by some uh, form of being ill-raised. It's just a state of being. You can be a narcissist. Just because that's what you are. And oh, I see, Chuck. So you're basing this on your infinite wisdom as a, uh, I guess, a Ph.D. in narcissism. Uh, okay, well, thank you for your call. I do appreciate it. Uh, let us continue. And let's go to Jane, Saratoga, New York, WTBJ. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich, how are you? Um, I am okay. wonderful. Good. Yes, you are. And congratulations, by the way. Oh, oh, thank you. Good for you. You you deserve that. Believe me, you put up with us. Um, <laughs> You're the best. I mean, way up north, when you know, I've mentioned before, I used to be an abuse counselor. But my daughter was, she was very independent, and she could have an attitude. And um, so we would have an agreement, um, okay, you're going to probably go to timeout if you're acting up. And um, hmm. you have a right to sit down and talk to me about why you're acting the way you are. So one day we did that, and she said, Mommy, could I have the floor now? <laughs> I said, yeah. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> What's going on? She said, I have to mention, you have been extremely grouchy today. So when I go to timeout, may I put you in timeout also? And I... I said, you know what? Yes, yes, you can, and I apologize. And she had. Well, now, Jane, I know that you have a, a lot of experience with this, um, but I can tell you, my children have brought this theory to me many times, where they're like, "Why is it that you're the only one allowed to tell us what to do?" And I was like, "Well, because I'm the parent." And they were like, "Well, that's that's not fair." And I said, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, I've never really accepted that. Uh, are you suggesting it is a good idea to allow to, to be on an equal playing field with the child as opposed to being in charge? Not equal playing field. You're always the parent. But, yes, a child has certain rights, and they do have a right to express themselves. And I think we as parents have to encourage that so that, outside influence doesn't affect them because if if you shut them up too often they're going to turn to some other avenue and you don't want that so you have to i I know my daughter had one friend who came to me um, when they were in the fourth grade and he said um my daddy yelled at me last night because i love my baby doll and he said i would love to look like her and I said, well, okay, that's fine. I said, you want the next time you come over, do you want to bring your baby doll with you? And um, the kids 
started to support each other from elementary school on. 14 is way too late to start. And they would get together most afternoons and have a huge jam session. And there was one little girl whose parents were so narcissistic, and she never got any attention. And she would always have to be all dressed up. So the kids would have her come to the house. They would eat. We kept a pair of shorts for her so she could play and have fun. And then the kids would sit down and have a big jam session and talk to each other about their problems. And it mm. was amazing how much the kids could accomplish. And, um, I mean, it's really neat. If, if you encourage them to talk and be themselves, then you can have a friend sitting there and saying, you know, geez, my parents did that too, or another one says, well, come to my house. And they always knew they had a safe place, and I think we need to give that. Yeah, I'm sorry. All right, well, I'll I'll give it a shot. I will give it a shot. Don't overcorrect your kids. Um, I'll I'll try it. I mean, I don't know that I overcorrect my kids or not. I don't know. I'm pretty sure they're the biggest credits of of my parenting, but I tend to think I'm great. Maybe I'm a narcissist. Jane, thank you for your call. I appreciate it. Uh, Let's continue. Uh, Let's go to Robert Sarth, uh, South Carolina, WTMA, Charleston. Go right ahead. Yes, sir. Um, I, I, I just want to say, Rich, that I think that that second man that that you that you spoke with just briefly, I think what he was really trying to get at was the difference between nature versus nurture. And and, and you can see that in some cases you have a, a child who grows up wonderfully, even though his parents were a disaster area. And then you have another child whose parents were a disaster area, but he grows up wonderful. And I was thinking, you know, somebody that a, 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 a parenting pair that we all know about, the Bidens, look at the difference between their two sons. I mean, it's the difference between day and night. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think it has also to do with um, there was some early uh, trauma in their family where they they lost their mom initially, um, where I think the the oldest, um, Biden, Bo Biden, he he was able to spend more time with with his uh, biological mother. And and I think that stuff does ultimately uh, take a toll and and play an impact. But again, I'm not Dr. Phil, but it's an interesting point. uh, nonetheless, Robert, thank you for the call and big shout out to everybody on WTMA in South Carolina. I appreciate that. Let's continue uh, with our conversations here. Let's see. I want to get into uh, the other topic of the the woman, uh, Carly Russell, who said she saw a kid on the side of the road and decided to go and rescue him. But we're going to do that right after this pause. But so before we get there. Let's go to Thomas in Burlington, Vermont on WVMT. Thomas, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Yes, it's it's very uh, one of the big uh, issues was the accusations against President Trump. He was narcissistic because he had achievement, and uh, you know uh, there's a lot of achievement that uh, people can acquire. And uh, the if you go to the Merriam-Webster. Uh, unabridged.com and go into narcissistic it's a it, you can't just apply it to parents because everybody is a potential parent even a 14 year old but i i think we it's easy to misrepresent it and um 
You know, you're saying I was people are being thinking. flippant in their use of the term narcissist or narcissistic. Yes, I think you can uh, search it out because you know, uh, obviously, at 14, uh, I didn't think my parents knew very much, but they did. <laughs> right. They did pay for leadership in a in a schoolhouse. And and that school teacher should send you home and say, listen, your parents are. You go home and make life easier easier for your parents because they're paying the bill, and we're not getting the leadership message that the bill. Right, we're not getting our money's worth in the schoolhouse anymore like we used to. I get it. I get it, Thomas. I appreciate the call from Burlington, Vermont. And uh, quickly, before we uh, the music creeps in, let's go to Dan in Flagstaff, Arizona, listening on Rich Valdez, AmericaAtNight.com. Dan, go right ahead. Hey, Rich, it's a pleasure. Uh, I just want to say it's a little off topic, off the topic, but uh, I just want people to think about President Trump, how much I heard he lost a billion his first four years. It's about $600,000 a day and still ran for re-election. So, you know, he's a narcissist. He's a liar. I was in the Navy. There's a lot of sailors that tell stories. You know, he's, he's, he dyes his fit, you know, skin orange. All that stuff's irrelevant. You look back <laughs> at all your good teachers, all your teachers that you really didn't you know, hated, they were good. They made you do your homework. That's why you hated them. So the guy gets right. the job done. That's the bottom line. But look at follow the money. That's what they say. Follow the money. Right? Yeah. The guy's losing $600,000 a day. Forget politics for a minute, America. He's losing six hundred grand and runs for re-election. He loves the country. He. Lo- I think you're a hundred percent right, Dan. I appreciate it, Dan in Flagstaff, Arizona, listening online. Rich Valdez, America at Night dot com. Make sure you check that out. And folks, we're coming right back to you and your calls. I am Rich Valdez. Eight three three four eight two five three three seven eight three three four Valdez. Don't move a muscle. Coming right back. Detectives, the male had orange hair with a big bald spot on the back. She said she was able to escape the 18-wheeler and fled on foot, only to be captured again, and then was put in a car. She claimed she was then blindfolded but was not tied up because the captor said they did not want to leave impressions on her wrists. She said that they took her into a house and made her get undressed. She believes they took pictures of her, but she does not remember them having any physical or sexual contact. She stated the next day she woke up and was fed cheese crackers by the female. She said the woman also played with her hair, but could not remember anything else. At some point, she was put back in a vehicle she claims was able to escape while it was in the West Hoover area. She told detectives she ran through lots of woods until she came out near her residence. During this interview, detectives noted that Carly had a small injury to her lip, and she claimed that her head was hurting. She also had a tear on her shirt. Detectives also noted that she had $107 cash in her right sock. 
Out of respect for Carly and her family, detectives did not press for additional information in this interview and made plans to speak with her in detail after giving her time to rest. Detectives continue analyzing data from Carly's cell phone that was left behind at the scene. We enlisted the help of the United States Secret Service in conducting this analysis. Part of what data includes several internet searches and the days leading up to their disappearance that I think are very relevant to this case. That is Police Chief Nick Derzis. Now, he is the um, chief of police there in Alabama. And part of what's going on here is after working with the Secret Service, they connected with um, the, the facts, right? And now that they know exactly what's going on, it's interesting because what they're finding out is that she had all these crazy searches like, you know, how to get away with uh, your own abduction, like the movie Taken, um, and not that Taken's about that, but it's about an abduction, uh, as well as, you know, how to steal money from a cash register, bus tickets that she was um, um, looking to arrange and schedule on this day. Fascinating, just fascinating the stuff that they found, uh, as if she doesn't watch the news and saw that the guy who killed his wife got caught for doing the same exact thing. So this is an absolute uh, crazy town story, and we're going to get to your calls momentarily. I see we got calls from Hawaii. That's pretty cool, uh, as well as Michigan and North Carolina. We're going to start with Kim in Michigan because I know she had a comment on uh, Carly Russell, who apparently is uh, doing double duty as a stunt double for Jesse Smollett, faking her own kidnapping and attack. Go right ahead, Kim. Thanks, Rich. Uh, yeah, I called about that, and if and I'd like to please talk about the border numbers and stuff. But yeah, with this Carly, uh, I I didn't know right away that it was a fake. I thought, well, it could be real, you know. But um, <clears throat> it turns out she stole from her business. All those things that that uh, sheriff was saying. She right before she walked out the door, she stuffed a. a at the spa business, uh, a bathrobe and something else. And, and she, I understand toilet paper. I think she took toilet paper with her. Yeah. Um, and she, she is, she's another Jesse Smollett and she's blaming a white person. And I'm so sick of it because, you know, I I don't know if the person was white, but I guess we can make that presumption when she said that the man had orange hair and I thought orange hair, what's going on here? What, is she going to try and blame this on Trump? This is just absolutely crazy. Uh, You're right. Uh, Just crazy story, Kim. And the other thing I wanted to say, there's a reason behind um, Biden's illegal numbers supposedly dropping. Um, They're not. I heard on my War Room show that a, a number of months ago, Mayorkas and Biden set up um pre-registration sites in Mexico and the mm-hmm. illegals use their cell phones. They find out where these sign up places are and they sign up, they get a ticket and then head on to the border. And once they hit the border, I guess they turn this ticket in this pre-authorization. Yeah. What's well, the CBP one app and they do it right from their smartphone. So they, they go right to the port of entry and they don't have to come from those places in between. And that's exactly why the numbers look like they're down. It's because they're coming right through the port of entry, not from between the ports of entry. 
And um, like we talked about, it's like a political shell game. It's uh, all sleight of hand, and it's it's a it's a real shame. But thank you, Kim. I appreciate it. Big shout out to everybody in Michigan, and thank you for listening on KDKA. You know, KDKA is the uh, is Pittsburgh's uh, radio station, and it is the oldest radio station in the United States. Now, what's pretty cool about KDKA is they they had their ratings out recently, and America at Night was the number one show on the whole radio station. So thank you to everybody in Pittsburgh and everybody listening on KDKA because um, that was really cool to see. I think we scored a 15 share or a 16 share the last couple of months. So um, kudos to all of you. Thank you very much. I'm honored. And I want to go to Roger in Honolulu, Hawaii, listening on KHKA. Roger, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, Aloha. Aloha. Listen, uh, yeah, I just want to break it up. Nothing serious, but, um, well, you're, you're, um, that woman is, she's great. And she says, well, America at night and (laughs) listen, right. Right. Waikiki, Waikiki doesn't sleep. Okay. Ah, You're trying to give New York a little competition, Roger. Well, no, I'm not saying that, (laughs) but, uh, we're 24 seven out here because we have people flying in all hours. And, uh, if you look at the Waikiki, you see all the lights on there. So, you know, people are showing up at two, three, four in the morning. So, uh, we never sleep out here, mate. Well, let me uh, tell you something, Roger. I'll agree with you on this one because I can tell you, I just saw a report that came out that said that people are going out earlier and earlier and um, including in New York. I've been to places in New York that I think the last call for alcohol at most bars is I think it's 4 a.m. or 345 in most places in New York. Uh, Might even go to 5 a.m. in some spots, honestly. And uh, I haven't seen that happen in forever. And I don't think it's just because of me not doing it. I don't think anybody's doing it. I don't think New York ever really rebounded after the um, uh, COVID-19 lockdown. So I think a lot of people might go out for dinner. They do happy hour. And I think by 10, 11, midnight, even on a weekend, they're calling it a, they're calling it a, a night pretty early. So, yeah, maybe Waikiki is giving some competition to the city that never sleeps. I don't know. You might be onto something, Roger. Coming in here. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I just called to, like, break up the seriousness. <laughs> I appreciate like, that. Uh, well, yeah, because uh, you're a stud, and um, I listened to your program, and like I told the um, uh, the bloke that was uh, screening the calls, I said, no, yeah. I just want to talk to him and tell him that, uh, hey, you know, you're not the only one to stay up all night. <laughs> well, I mean, I listen, I'm grateful. Too. Yeah, and uh, I listened to you. I told him, I said, after the San Francisco Giants or the San Francisco 49ers games, you come on, and it's great. Uh, (laughs) All right, dude. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your kind words. Thanks for listening. Keep it coming. Call us anytime. Roger in Honolulu, Hawaii on KHKA. Thanks again, brother. Always good to hear from you. Folks, the rest of your calls and more when we return. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
Miller Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Jason Aldean's new song, Try That in a Small Town, is getting um, a lot of heat, right? Uh, it's called Try That in a Small Town. It's t- chop, uh, take two. It's topping the charts. Um, people are, Some people are saying it's a pro-lynching song. Uh, I didn't hear any of that when I was listening to it, but again, I haven't listened to the whole thing. But I will say, it seems like anytime you stand up for America or you say something like, you know, um, fool around and find out, People take that the wrong way and everybody's up in arms, but nobody's up in arms when they're coming after your kids saying, hey, do you want to be a boy or a girl? Hey, did you know you can change your gender? Hey, you know, you can do that. It's funny how they can attack us, but we can never attack them. It's it's always wrong to be a, a conservative. It's wrong to be a Christian. It's wrong to have deeply held religious beliefs. That makes you an extremist. That makes you uh, a fanatic. It makes you uh, all sorts of crazy, right? Yeah, MAGA extremist. And it's uh, but everything else that the left does, like canceling a singer, saying that they don't want you trying to kick you off Spotify, trying to kick you off iTunes or anything else, making sure my microphone doesn't work for one segment. You know, whatever it is that they're doing, it, that's always OK. And, and I think Americans are, are, are smarter than that. They know that it doesn't work that way. Right. It, you don't get to get bullied by people that disagree with you. It just doesn't work that way. Anyway, let's go to Matt, Eastern North Carolina, WTKF. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich. How appropriate that was for the beginning of my call. Are you with me? Yes, sir, 100%. I know your your microphone messed up earlier. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's the deep state. That's Uh, Joe Biden and his friends. Yeah, I figured that. They're probably going to come after me, too. But anyway... um, (laughs) I'm not even a country music fan. I was telling you, Art, your call screener. Yes, good man, Art. Country music. Yes, he is. But it's a beautiful song. It, it is. It, it's a beautiful song. It really does encompass everything. It says everything. It tells the message, you know, um, of, of what people really stand for. And there's been a massive emasculation in this country where they don't want men to be men, you know. And it started years ago. I remember my dad loved watching Archie Bunker. Uh, I don't know if you've watched Archie Bunker over the years, but all in the family with Carol O'Connor. And, and you know, again, the beginning of the song was back when girls were girls and men were men. <laughs> That's part of the the intro song. And, and it's funny how this is a, a show from the 70s that was uh, uh, traditional in its values back then. Now, of course, he made a lot of racial jokes against his black neighbor, George Jefferson. And that was the spinoff to the show, The Jeffersons, which we loved in our household. We loved the show. It was great. But my point was that was a real depiction of the times. And it was funny. And I think it was done in love and in jest uh, because they were always very friendly. It was like a rivalry, but it, it was art imitating life. But it was real. And and back then, girls were girls and men were men. And people were expected men to be men. And it seems like somehow now men are expected to be girls, right? Or men are expected to not be men. And when you are, they label you with toxic masculinity. And if you're Jason Aldean saying, hey, don't try that in my small town, you won't get far. They want to say that you're trying to lynch somebody. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous to make those types of suggestions. You know, Matt, just to go on a little bit of a tangent here. Uh, earlier today, I was looking at my Instagram account, you know, just seeing the the stories that the algorithms put in for you. And I saw a video 
of a woman making like a bunch of kissy sounds. And she said, that's what it's like to date a Hispanic man. And I thought, that's funny. Uh, and then she, you know, abruptly adds, but that's him with his mom. And she was jealous of the affection that that so many uh, uh, Hispanic men have uh, with their mom. And and I was thinking, I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, um, I, I know plenty of people who, whose moms like I, I didn't do laundry until I was 33 years old. My mom did it. My dad did everybody did my laundry but me. And uh, then I was married and my, my ex-wife did my laundry. So when I started doing laundry after I got divorced at 33 years old, I um, wasn't good at it. You know, it never smelled as good as when my wife or my mom did it. I also didn't pay my own bills. Like I, I paid them, but I didn't write, you know, I, would, I wouldn't write the checks or anything. I didn't read the mail. I didn't do any of that stuff. It just, I worked, the money was in the bank and somebody handled that for me. And uh, so I had to learn how to do all these things when I was a um, newly divorced man. And some people look at that and say, oh, my gosh, you, you were you what, what, bad home training. That was just that was the custom. That's a, a, a cultural norm, if you will. Now, maybe some Hispanics are going to call in now. Ah, I pay my own bills. My wife doesn't do that. But that was how it was for me. I didn't do any of that stuff. <clears throat> I really I didn't cook. I didn't uh, I didn't do uh, what I just said. I didn't do the, the checkbook balancing. I didn't do any of that. So my, my bottom line here is I think that uh, affection for one's mother is a normal thing. And maybe it's more so in the Hispanic uh, culture. I don't know. Uh, but I can tell you it's, it's a very uh, popular thing to have, you know, for your mom to make you a plate. And, and, and the, the moral of my story here where I'm going with this tangent is that the comments in this Instagram meme were from. I don't know, there's like a thousand of them, maybe 500 and or 800. And th many people were saying that this was called emotional incest. And I thought that is some crazy stuff to say that because, you know, some Hispanic moms or helicopter moms that like to do their laundry and take care of their baby boys into their 30s um, or forever, because I don't think moms really let go. I, how do you call that emotional incest? Like, I thought it was entirely inappropriate. And uh, I was actually going to bring it up with our parent coach earlier, but I just felt like we ran out of time and I didn't have the time to do it. But it was interesting. And if anybody has an opinion on this, give me a call. Uh, but I just thought it was it was out of line. But again, I'm biased. I am a Hispanic man. I did love, you know, I do love my mom. She's not with us anymore. But uh, I love my mom to death. And she was, you know, she did lots for me. She was always cooking. She, she was that kind of mom, like so many moms, right? I can't, uh, I, I, I know that that's how that works. And, you know, not every mom, but many. So uh, I'm just, you know, one more thing where people will label you something, whether it's Jason Aldean's song that needs to get canceled because he's nailing it and saying it like it is, or somebody's mom loving them and them loving their mom back and being called emotional incest. The whole thing is fake. It's phony. It's fraud, in my opinion, Matt. Anyway, they're telling me I got to take a break. I went too long. So uh, thank you for your call, Matt. Eastern North Carolina, WTKF. I'm Rich Valdez coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez. I tell you, there's a bunch of lefty weirdos out there that think that because a Hispanic woman might call her son 
papi or papito, papito lindo, or mi rey, my king, that this is somehow a replacement for her mate in life, calling this emotional incest. I think this is so off the deep end. And again, I'm just introducing this very briefly here. We're going to get into this. I'm going to find me a slew of experts to have conversations on this. I don't like it one bit. Um, I think it's, it's the wrong label and it's totally misunderstood. So we'll get to that in a, a subsequent day. But there's a headline I'm going to tease because we can't dig into it too deeply. Hearing aids may cut the risk of cognitive decline by nearly half, meaning if your hearing's not well and you get a hearing aid, you might actually be helping yourself to prevent dementia. Interesting, right? And there's another dementia story. We're going to cover that one tomorrow, probably in hour number three or maybe uh, towards the end of hour number one if I can get to it. But I just want to thank you guys for tonight. Despite our deep state trouble with the mic, we're back live on the air. And uh, I also want to thank you for um, considering entering your email to vote for me on the People's Choice Podcast Award. Uh, We've been nominated. You can go to podcastawards.com, put in your email, and click that blue button to vote now. Anyway, hasta la próxima. That means until the next time. Take care, good night, and God bless. I am Rich Valdez. We're going to do it together again tomorrow. But until then, keep it locked on this station. There's more to come. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.